Good to see you in church this morning. Excuse me, we'll be in John chapter 2. John chapter 2, as soon as I clear my throat. And uh, now if you mark in your Bible like I do, I often date, uh, put a date out beside passages of Scripture uh, when Brother Eric or I or, or Brother Garrett would preach on them here uh, just because I like to keep up with it and I look back and I say, well, I used that recently or something. But if you mark in your Bible, you'll know that Brother Eric preached out of John chapter 2 um, back last month when he preached on the miracle of the wedding at Cana, and that's not what we're going to be talking about this morning. And so, rest assured, I'm not going to preach the same message he preached. We're just going to look at the same chapter out of the same book. We're going to look towards the end of that chapter this morning as we talk about the idea of perception and reality, because, you know, sometimes perception is not reality. Now, I think uh, one, one area that came to my mind uh, most clearly is age, all right? Age. Perception is not always reality, is it? You could go down here to the school, and I've heard true stories of even things that have been said by our little ones here at church. you got to take a kindergartner or a first grader, and, you know, it may not be safe to do if you know, if you know that they're teachers or if you're their friends or whatever, but... Ask a kindergartner or a first grader, how old do you think your teacher is? I heard one here one time uh, thought some of our uh, younger, I'll say younger teachers had to have been like in their 50s or 60s, you know? And in reality, they're in their 20s and 30s. You know, kids don't have the, aren't able to judge the age uh, very well. And uh, I've just got to uh, tell you this little story, too. Well, I got two things. Working part-time at the funeral home changed my perception of age. Brother Eric and I will be talking, and I'll tell him, oh, by the way, so-and-so died. Brother Eric said, well, I'm not too familiar with that. How old a person are they? I said, oh, they're young. They're about 65. You know? I mean, working at the funeral home has changed my perception of how old old is, right? But then there's a group of Young adults will emphasize young adults. So it's planning a little group outing. These are young adults from Brister Baptist Church, okay? Mary and I are proud to be part of that group of young adults. Brother Garrett and Courtney are part of this group of young adults. And as I understand the way things went down, because I wasn't there when this particular thing happened, but Brother Garrett or Courtney, somebody was talking to another person who was supposed to be a group of this young adults, who for the moment will remain nameless. And this person, when they found out Mary and I were going, said, but they're kind of old, aren't they? Now, we've got to cut Cody some slack here. Because he said, when you first came here as the associate pastor, I was in high school. You know, so the perception that I was so much older. But... Uh, so now there's a little running joke about me being old, and, you know, Mary made the comment. She said, I've got to do better about calling Brother Garrett, Brother Garrett, because they're always so good about calling you Brother Jeremy. I said, it's because I'm so old. So I say all that to say perception influences our reality, or at least the way we perceive reality. So as we come to the text this morning, we find Jesus in a situation where the perception, the way things look, 
don't really line up with the reality of the situation and what's going on. So just to get you caught up with where we're at in the story, of course, uh, in the beginning of chapter 2, Jesus did go to the wedding at Cana where he performed that very first miracle, John says, and he turned the water into wine there at the wedding. And then it says, if we continue to read in chapter 2, that he traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover. And it says, uh, while he was there, he cleansed the temple. Did it the first time he cleansed the temple. And, of course, as you read that, he didn't make any friends uh, while he was doing that. And then if we were move on past chapter 2 into chapter 3, we find that very familiar story of Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, where Jesus very plainly and, and maybe the most plain and the most clear uh, presentation of the gospel, maybe that's in the entire Bible, when Jesus said to Nicodemus, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But we're going to go back up just a little bit into chapter 2, the last three verses of chapter 2. And what we find here in our text, are these three verses serve kind of as a bridge. All throughout John's gospel, you find these little sections of verses that bridge between one story and another. It's just John's writing style. And it's really easy as you read through and you get to these little bridge texts, these little connectors between the stories. It's real easy to say, well, that's insignificant information. Let me get on to the next story. But as I was studying this passage of Scripture, one of the commentators I was looking at, he said this. He said, these verses are among the most significant statements for providing a correct perspective to the gospel. How do you view the gospel message? The gospel that will be presented in the very next story, that story of Nicodemus. These verses ought to set our perspective on the right path. Read with me, if you will, John chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. It says, Now when he, that's Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the wisdom of your word. We thank you for these, uh, even the, the passages that sometimes seem Uh, insignificant to us. We thank you for the rich truth that is in them. Father, I pray that there won't be a single person in this room today who leaves here the same as they came in. I pray that we'll be transformed by your word, that we'll be changed by your word, and that if need be, your word would change the way we think, that it would change the way we perceive the gospel. I pray that we'd leave here properly aligned with you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to jump straight into the text this morning. We're talking about perception. We're talking about uh, having the proper perspective. And so let's look here. There's two different perspectives I want to look at this morning as we go through these three verses of Scripture. First, we have the perspective of the people. Look back in verse 23 again. It says, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he did. They saw the signs Jesus did, and they believed in his name. Now, 
I don't want to just assume that everybody in the room knows what we mean by the word signs. Of course, the word signs is the word Jesus used, I mean, that John uses to describe Jesus' miracles. And you guys say, why does he use the word signs? That's an interesting word to use. We well, think about what a sign does. A sign does one of a couple different things. A sign can point you in the direction of something. A sign can announce something. You know, you drive, get out on the highway and you drive up here to Magnolia and you're coming up on the intersection there at Main Street and 79 where Walgreens is at. And as you approach that intersection, over on the right side, there's a big green sign. And it'll say El Dorado. It has an arrow pointing to the right. It ought to if you're going north. Say Camden has an arrow pointing straight up. I remember, I'll tell this funny story on Truett, he probably won't appreciate this, but when he was first learning to read, we saw one of those signs that said Camden. And he looked at it and misread it and said, Canada's that way. I said, well, as a matter of fact, it is. But that's not what the sign says, right? Signs point us towards things. You go down here to Emerson. They got some nice new signs up. Welcome to Emerson, announcing you've arrived at Emerson. We got a nice big green sign out here that, boy, it glows at night. And since we got the new sign, it's even brighter, and it announces that you've arrived at Brister Baptist Church. The signs of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, were intended to point those who saw them somewhere. They were intended to point them to Jesus. They were intended to announce that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Messiah, promised for thousands of years, promised by God himself. So what signs did they see? It says when they saw the signs, they believed. John doesn't tell us. But if we were to look at Matthew's account, in Matthew's account, it tells us that he healed the blind, that he healed the lame, and they saw these things. And John says they believed on his name. And we say, praise God, that is a wonderful thing. From our viewpoint, we say, that's what people ought to do, right? Because if you look over, uh, if you were to look in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, when Peter's addressing the Sanhedrin, Peter said, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no name under heaven given among men, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The name of Buddha can't save you. The name of Muhammad can't save you. You can't call on the Pope to save you. Your grandmama can't save you. Boy, she wishes she could. But there's one name that can save you, and that's the name of Jesus. John says they saw the signs, and they believed on his name. Makes me think about what Paul and Silas told the Philippian jailer in Acts 16 when they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. Believe. But we go back to our text, and we see that John says the people did believe, or did they? See, this is where we got to look a little bit further. In verse 24, it says, Jesus did not commit himself to them. Jesus didn't commit himself to them. That word commit and the word believe in the previous verse come from the exact same Greek word. We could say Jesus did not believe them, and we'd be saying the exact same thing. It says they claimed to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They saw the miracle, and they claimed to believe, but Jesus didn't believe they believed. 
That's what he says. Jesus didn't commit himself. Jesus didn't believe them. Because Jesus knew something that John wrote down in verse 23. It says, they believed when they saw the sign. They believed when they saw. Their, their belief was based only on what they saw. It was superficial. They had head knowledge. But they didn't believe here. They didn't believe in their heart. And you say, well, what's the difference? What's the proof that just having the head knowledge isn't enough to save you? Well, if we looked in James chapter 2, verse 19, James told his readers, says, you believe, same Greek word that's used in John 2. James says, you believe that there's one God, and you do well. Even the demons believe, same Greek word. Even the demons believe and tremble. I think we can all agree the demons are not saved. Yet they have the head knowledge. They believe the demons know who Jesus is. This crowd in John 2 knows who Jesus is with the head knowledge. But you see, that's a big problem when it comes to salvation, to only have the head knowledge and not the true belief in the heart. And you say, well, well, why do you say that? Because Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, for by grace we're saved through faith. We're not saved through knowledge. We're saved through faith. What is faith? The last time I preached, I told you Adrian Rogers uh, definition of faith. I ought to quiz you and see if you remember it, but I wouldn't even remember that, so I wrote it down again. He says that it's believing God in spite of appearances and obeying God in spite of consequences. But you know, I like what Tony Evans says about faith too. His definition of faith is believing that it is so, even when it's not so, simply because God said so. Faith is believing that it is so, even when it's not so, simply because God said so. To put it simply, faith ends where sight begins. If you can see it, there's no faith involved because you see it. The people in John 2 only believed because of what they saw. The sign pointed them to Jesus, and that's the first step, but they never took it further. They had the head knowledge, but never received the heart knowledge. Let me show you a little, little, uh, little contrast here. You say, well, how, how would they get the heart knowledge? Back up in John chapter 2, Jesus had been speaking after he cleansed the temple. And in verse 19, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Listen to this. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered what he said to them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. You see where true faith comes from? Faith, as Paul says in Romans 10, 17, Faith comes by hearing, hearing from the Word of God. The disciples of Jesus, it says there in verse 22, they believed the Scripture 
and they believed the words he had said. The people just wanted to watch the show. These people we were talking about in verse 23, the people that we're focusing on right now, they just wanted to watch the show. They wanted the spectacle. They weren't concerned about the word. They just wanted to watch a miracle. And you might say, how in the world were they supposed to hear the word of God? Follow the signs. Follow the signs. Follow the miracles. Who were they pointing to? They were pointing to Jesus, who John says in verse 1, I mean in chapter 1, he says of Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He says Jesus Christ is the word. The crowd needed to stop and listen for a few minutes instead of just watching for the spectacular. And you know, this reminds me, uh, what's going on here reminds me of the feeding of the 5,000. Tim taught on that the last two weeks in Sunday school. But as you look at the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and you see what happens after the story, Jesus gets in the boat. This is in John chapter 6. Jesus gets in the boat and crosses to the other side. And the crowd sees he goes over there, so the crowd goes around there too. And then if you read the text, I'll just paraphrase, the crowd runs into him and says, well, funny you should be here, Jesus. Funny running into you. And in John chapter 6, verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Jesus is doing all these miracles. And the crowd believed Jesus. They believed he could do more miracles. He's healing the blind. He's, he's causing the lame to walk. Hey, there's some things he could do for me. That's why the crowd's following him. They're following him for the spectacular. That's their perspective. Look at the perspective of Jesus, however. In verse 24, it says, Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in a man. Jesus knew all men, and he knew what was in man. And you say, well, that's one verse of Scripture. Well, let me give you a bunch more, all right? This is found all throughout Scripture. In Jeremiah 20, verse 12, Jeremiah is praying to God, and he says, but, O Lord of hosts, you who test the righteous, listen to this, and see the mind and heart. See, John and the disciples are watching this crowd, and they're seeing this crowd. Oh, they're excited, and they're following Jesus. You ever known somebody who was excited and following Jesus, and they fizzle out later? That's what's going to happen to this crowd in this moment. They're excited, and they're following Jesus, but Jesus sees their heart. He sees past the exterior. He sees what's on the inside. Psalm 139 says, O Lord, you've searched me and known me. David says, you know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 21, 2, Every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Matthew chapter 12, verse 25, the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. And Matthew says that Jesus knew their thoughts. And then in Matthew 22, the Herodians were trying to catch Jesus when they asked Jesus, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And Matthew says that Jesus perceived their wickedness. You see, we can put on a show 
And we can fake it till we make it as far as human beings are concerned. We can make other people think we're something we are not. But you see, there's one who sees right through that. You ain't going to fake it out with Jesus. You're not going to fool him. You may fool a lot of people. You may fool your mama. You may fool your spouse. You may fool your children. You may fool your coworkers. But you're not going to fool Jesus. Because he knows the mind and he knows the heart. This crowd thought they'd fooled everybody. They may not even have realized that they thought they'd fooled everybody. But Jesus knew what they really were. He knew the intentions of their heart. The perspective of Jesus is that he doesn't just know their words and their actions. He knows what's on the inside. MacArthur says that Jesus was looking for proof of genuine conversion. And all the crowd was looking for was the spectacular. You may... We sit here and we say, well, this is good information to have. It's interesting to know this about what's happening, but how does that apply to me? What does this have to do with me sitting at Bristol Baptist Church on Sunday, August the 21st, 2022? We may be sitting here thinking, this doesn't have a thing to do with me. You know what? I think it does. Because I think it's important that every one of us, from time to time, we do a self-check to make sure our belief is genuine. You say, but I was baptized. There ain't nothing about that water that'll save you. I've told you before, I used to tell the teenagers all the time that there's one water line comes in this church. It goes to the toilets, it goes to the sinks, and it goes to the baptistry. Nothing special about the water. That water won't save you. You say, well, I'm a member of the church. Well, when the roll is called up yonder, it ain't going to be the membership role of Brister Baptist Church. Church membership won't save you. One day there's a lot of people who self-identify as Christians who will burn for eternity in hell. And you say, well, that's pretty strong. That's not my words. That's the words of Jesus. If you look in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven Many will say to me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Or your version may say something about you who practice iniquity. A lot of people who claim to be Christians who will spend eternity in hell because they had the head knowledge, but never developed the heart knowledge. I don't want to ever make somebody doubt their salvation, but we need to make sure that we're not just claiming to be followers of Jesus. We need to make sure that we don't just have the excitement over the spectacular, but that we really understand and have faith. We need to make sure we're actually following Jesus. And do you know how we can know that we know? In Matthew 7, just a few verses before what we just read, Jesus says, by their fruits, talking about his followers, by their fruits you'll know them. In other words, by what their life produces, you'll know they are my followers. Their life will bear the proof, the fruit 
of salvation. In other words, those who are truly saved, they don't just say they're saved. They live like they're saved. They live like they're saved. That's the difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge. Head knowledge determines what may, may determine what you think or say. Heart knowledge determines how you live. This morning, I want you to know that Jesus saw through the crowd. He saw through the facade. He saw their heart. This morning, as we prepare for our invitation, as Jesus looks through your facade, and he looks through my facade, and he looks at our heart, what does he see? Does Jesus see a heart that truly believes, truly has faith in him? Does he see a person who is truly committed to to living the life of a Christian? Does he see a, the, a person who is truly saved? Or does he see a person that just kind of went through the motions one day and doesn't really know him as Savior, never really has trusted him as Savior? My goal this morning is not to make you doubt your salvation. It's to encourage you to make sure your salvation is genuine. Jesus knows what's in a man, and he knows you're a sinner, and he knows I'm a sinner. He knows all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. It's what... Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, He knows that because we've sinned, we have no hope of heaven on our own. That's why Romans 5, 8 through 9 says, God demonstrated his own love towards us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And he told us how we can claim that salvation for our own in Romans 10, verse 9. He said, if you confess with your mouth, Lord Jesus Christ, and believe, where? Not in your head. He said, if you'll believe in your heart, God raised you from the dead, you'll be saved. goes on to say, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Here's the question this morning, do you really believe? It's a question we all have to ask ourselves. It's a question that's pertinent today. The Bible says today's the day of salvation. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, it is my prayer that you will do so before you leave this building. You may choose to walk this aisle and take the hand of Brother Eric or to take my hand or to find Brother Garrett or find somebody else in the room you trust and say, would you tell me more about how to be saved? There's nothing more we'd rather do. As pastors, there's nothing more than any genuine Christian in this room, room would rather do than show you how you can know Jesus as your personal Savior. This morning, maybe you say, my life's straight a little bit, and I need to recommit to him. Tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about growing our faith. Just talking about making sure you got the right faith. Tonight, we're going to talk about growing that faith. I hope you'll come back. But whatever God is dealing with you about right now, would you take care of that as we stand and sing?